without any further ado, here's the second part of our conversation with Joseph Gill of Mercenary Analytics. About um, your quote that uh, basketball is a game of markets, so efficiency. I completely, I just breeze right past that question for a long. Sorry. Here so, yeah, I mean, go, going back to, I mean, basketball at a like you know what, what baseball analytics did was they broke down baseball into its smallest unit, and the smallest unit in baseball is a run. Yeah. The smallest unit in basketball is a point. But the way that we never we we never really properly conceptualize baseball versus basketball is in baseball. You have a nine-man lineup, and when you bat leadoff, you got to wait for eight more guys to go to the plate before you come back up. In basketball, for that analogy, you can have your best hitter hit 50% of the time, 60%. Even if you want to, 100% of the time. You can have him hit – if he wasn't on base in the basketball analogy, you can have him hit 100% of the time if you wanted to. And so it's, it's definitely one of those things that gets lost where, I, you know, when, when you look at point totals, it has to be um, – it has to be – weighted against an average of some sort you know because once a player uses a possession what happens directly after that player's possession is over the other team gets it and there's no team in any competitive basketball has ever scored a zero points per possession rate for an entire season that team is going to be scoring at some rate and so you know the, the what you bring as far as a volume is never going to be able to exist in a vacuum because basketball is a turn by turn tug of war and you know if, if you bring me um, you know, 30 possessions at 0.9 efficiency um, in a league where the average efficiency is one, you have, in theory, probably put us underwater. Um, you know, maybe you are the best player, most efficient player on your team, um, you know, and nobody else can be trusted to even bring in a 0.95 points per possession, you know, average expected return or a one uh, point per possession average expected return. But, you know, in that situation, a player who has 30 possessions and scores 0.9 points has 27 points in the game. You know, like most kids in AAU, most a lot of pros even look at 27 points like, hey, man, 27 points. And it's like, yeah, but if you scored at 0.9 points per possession on 30 possessions and your teammates scored on 1.2 points per possession on 60 possessions, you're probably – I almost said a bad word. You're probably a jerk. You are <laughs> probably a selfish person. Um, if you can't realize – and, like, yeah, I mean, in theory – what most people argue is that the highest volume player is, is what, you know, and this is a Dean Oliver concept, skill curves, where the less you're asked to do something at a per possession rate, the more effective you are at it. It's just a natural, like, you know, kind of selection thing where, you know, like if you're, if you're shaving off, if you do something five times in a game and you have to shave it down to four, with enough practice, you're going to generally just learn on your own which is the worst look, you know, if you're motivated all by winning or your own performance, you're going to figure out enough things about like, you know, where you score efficiently, we're going to look for which one to dump, right? Same goes if you had to add a possession, all of a sudden the possession you're adding, you know, you might not, it might be the first possession of the game, third possession of the game, your sixth possession of the game. It is going to be your least efficient possession because you're going to be doing something you wouldn't otherwise be doing. You're probably less efficient at that thing. Right. Um, and so, you know, in theory, that applies to a whole team where if a guy's soaking up a ton of possessions, it frees up everybody else to do what they do best. But I found in practicality that at a certain point, you get diminishing returns where, you know, basketball is a social game. We're humans. We're not robots. Um, to a certain point, you get that advantage. But then guys start feeling they're frozen out. Guys stop giving effort on defense. Guys stop cutting hard. Guys stop spotting up hard. They stop relocating hard. They stop setting good screens. All of a sudden, all the small things that go about actually – you know, building an offense, falling to ruin. And what's left is a very sloppy, very unappealing game of basketball with poor offense. And so, you know, I, I found that, like, you know, in, the, in that situation where a guy is scoring, you know, 0.9 on large possession, the rest of the team's scoring well above him. If you take that player out of the equation, there's going to be an acclimation period. But generally speaking, those four players are probably better off without that one who's soaking up a whole bunch of those possessions. There, there's some happy medium where those players are still freed up to do what they're good at and then a more efficient player is able to slide into a less higher volume role. Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that maybe we'll take a third try on it because I, I think I, I think I got it that time. Um, but uh, I got yeah. it. Let's let's talk about the uh, the Josh Smith bar because that's one of my favorite Joseph Gill philosophies. <laughs> I think I think I think if there's any person who can actually claim that I'm just mean to them in NBA history, it's Josh Smith. I, I really went out of my way to be a jerk about this. Um, the Josh Smith bar is my philosophy of 
if you are scoring at the rate of a Josh Smith three-pointer in any aspect of your game, you need to stop doing that thing immediately. Um, it's relative, like, you know, there's, like, obviously, so, like, the Josh Smith bar is 0.9 points per possession. How you get that is Josh Smith was, I think he was a 28.6% shooter for his career from three. Uh, yeah. I round up to 30 because I'm nice. See, Josh, if you're listening, I'm nice. <laughs> I round up to 30 because it's a number that is easier to remember. And it's also a number that is easier to calculate off the top of your head, where 0.9 points per possession comes out nicely. It's 45% from two. It's 30% from three. So if you're shooting below 45% from two, you are effectively shooting a Josh Smith three-pointer. Josh Smith lit hundreds of dollars on fire in his NBA career because he couldn't stop doing this. He bombed out of the league. Everyone said he was just the most ridiculous person because he couldn't stop chucking three-pointers. It was like the biggest talking point in basketball for five – not the biggest, but it was, it was a constant talking point in basketball every time Josh Smith was playing that Josh Smith cannot stop taking three-pointers. What is so different from a Josh Smith 30% three-pointer with 12 seconds on the shot clock versus a 45% mid-range shot with 12 seconds on the shot clock? I mean, yeah, in theory, you're making a gain – a larger amount of time that's offset over the long run perfectly by the fact that that gain is 33 is, is, is uh, 33% less than the gain of a three pointer, you know? So like that's the thing about PVP, like, you know, and then there's, I, I, I got this, this spreadsheet that I actually allow people to play with sometimes where it's basically just like they get to for themselves, you know, over, over, you know, whatever you want to say, a mid-range shot is whatever you want to say, a three-point shot is when it's equal. They get to see for themselves exactly how often over X percentage you score six points, four points, two points on the mid-range versus three, six, nine. I mean, you know, you're not taking into account fouls, obviously, but yeah. it's, it generally brings a point home that, you know, like even a small efficiency edge, you know, if, if it's a 33% three-pointer versus a 45% three-pointer, in almost every single game situation except for, like, the most blaringly obvious one, which is, like, 20 seconds to go in a two-point or in a one-point game, um, the three-pointer comes out ahead in both the single use, like the single, um, like the, the single, uh, the single instances in the long run. Got you. Yeah. Um, talk about how you said efficiency on the shot clock. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the entire, like, and I, you, you probably noticed this already, is that like, I love talking about other sports. Is there something you can learn from other sports? Do you, do you yeah. know why? So in cricket, if you wanted to think about batting average, which is basically like, you know, times, that you, that you hit the ball and you score a run versus times you make an out. Do you know what, the, what, what most cricket players the average is? Definitely not. <laughs> well, north of 95%. Okay. And the reason why that is is because in baseball, if you hit the ball, there's an impetus. You have to run to first. And if you don't run to first and, and you, you, the ball gets there before you do, you're out. Yeah. In cricket, there's no impetus. If the ball is not caught, you don't have to run. And so if you think about it, if you're a cricket player and you have an 80% chance of scoring a run versus 20% chance of making it out, you would be daffy to take that risk, right? In basketball, if you had, if you had an 80% chance of making a pass that leads to a wide open dunk or a turnover, uh, you know, you take 80% chance of leading to a wide open dunk versus 20% chance of, of it turning into a turnover. You take that risk every single time and then you hoist Larry O'Brien trophy then and you say, I'm the greatest because you would be the greatest offense in the history of, of basketball. But in cricket, I mean, because there's no impetus, there's no reason to act in a way that, you know, isn't a sure thing. When the shot clock is not such a binary impetus as having to run to first while you're out, but it is a slowly, it's like a guillotine, you know? At a certain point, it's going to hit zero if you don't do anything and you score zero points per possession. You cannot score when the shot clock hits zero unless the ball's already been released before it hits zero. And so, you know, like, it's just, it's, it's just a basic, simple diminishing returns thing where your expected value of possession at 24 is always going to be higher than your expected value of possession at one. And so it would track that in the middle, you know, it, there's, there's a certain curve because when you hit 23 seconds, all of a sudden, you know, the 0.1% of the time you actually shoot 24 seconds on the shot clock is removed, and there is now an incrementally greater chance that, you, that you, your possession gets to, to 1, to 2, to 3, right? You went on to, to 14, all of a sudden that percentage you beginning to 1 continues to grow. And so all of a sudden, I mean, a shot that, that's a bad shot, that's, that's an awful shot at 20 seconds on the shot clock, is a downright pretty okay outcome considering the situation when we've driven ourselves into at 3 seconds, right? And so I, I always try to impart that to my players where it's like, Dude, if you, if you want to take mid-range shots, first of all, I, I wish you wouldn't. 
<laughs> please don't seek out. Please don't seek out this. This don't 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 be don't be the don't be the hero. Don't be the guy unless you're a mass contract guy. Don't be the dude running towards the ball from the left corner up to the right wing with four seconds. I'm mean, like ball 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 with yeah. one second on the shot clock. That dude got himself into that situation by over dribbling. It's fine. It's his fault. If he had someone like me that he hired. He wouldn't do that anymore. He doesn't. It's just the way of the world, all right? We can't save everybody, all right? It's, it's like the trolley problem. We can't save everybody. Um, but, you know, if, if you want to take mid-ranges, just wait till you – like a certain amount of time you're going to have the ball at the end of the shot clock. Then take them. I don't care. Just don't turn it over, man. If, you, if, you, if you're catching the ball three seconds on the shot clock, do whatever it takes to make some amount of space and fire up the Kobe shot. Just don't fire up the Kobe shots at 14 seconds, man. You're letting all, both of our money on fire. And your agents, who might have been the one person who brought me in. He's not going to be thrilled either. <laughs> I like it. Let's talk about the, um, the story that, that you told on, on a podcast about what killed him was the laughing. Um, go ahead and go ahead and tell that do, one. Do you want to set it up or do you want me to, to, to set it? Uh, so from what I remember, there was a, a player that, that was shooting and he was shooting three-point shots at a low percentage in games. And you were like – so, you remember how we talked about Josh Smith like three minutes ago? Do you remember what he shot? Thirty <laughs> percent. If I round it up from thirty, he shot twenty-eight. Yeah, yeah. Twenty-eight and change. This player, in four years in college, at the time of this story, I believe was shooting twenty-two percent from three. And he was taking about one per game because he was a position where you had to take roughly one per game based on the offense. Mm-hmm. By the way, this offense was incredible. This was just like the one loosest wheel in the entire offense. <laughs> um, and it was this player was interesting because this player was a very intelligent player he was very hard working and you know he was very team centric in the sense where like, he would he would almost you know you, you get in a conversation with this player and i dude like you know i i wish you would have taken that three with five seconds on the shot clock and he's like yeah but it's just it's not and i'm like yeah but you also like the the marginal amount that we gained by you passing that shot up when it was wide open is probably offset by the fact that now in every single possession following that, you've just basically waved a gigantic red flag to the opposing team being like, I will never shoot a three pointer. Mm. You know? So he, he would honestly, he would even push back sometimes on, on the one attempt per game he would take. What was interesting about this player is over this four year sample size, he was one of the worst shooters I've ever seen in practice. He was a pretty good shooter. And his shot wasn't like I'm. I'm a, you know, I, I do a little bit of skill work. I'm not like Phil Beckner or like Packy Turner, where I'm doing you know skill work with guys that are, you know, like coming to me and being like, "Fix me," you know. But like I, I can I can occasionally add something to a player's arsenal that they might not have thought of. Um, this player's form was not great, not awful. It was repeatable enough where I felt like he should be much better than 22. percent It was also, you know, kind of just structurally unsound to the point where like he was never going to be probably a 40% shooter. Okay. What was interesting was in practice when in certain looks from certain points of the floor, he would actually knock down shots at a very high rate. And don't get me wrong. What you do in practice does not matter for what you do in games, but what you do in practice should also be a little bit related to what you're doing in games. And, you know, like oftentimes for a player like this, where he's taking one shot a game, I think it's more, you know, it's, it's fine for, you to pump up his confidence. I'm like, dude, you shoot 60% in practice versus a player who shoots 60% in practice and then turns around and takes four threes a game at 30%. You got to pump the brakes on person. Be like, dude, figure out why you're shooting 30% in games versus 60% in practice. And then we'll start you off at one or two attempts a game. Yeah. And if you do well, then we'll, we'll, we'll get you back in the role you want to be in. But anyway, this player, so, you know, like, like, like everything else in life, it was, it was this weird proposition of there's only a finite amount of time in – the season. There's only a finite amount of time remaining in this player's career. There's only a finite amount of time that I can be around this team. There's only a finite amount of time for this person if they're going to make a change in their game to acclimate to it. And so I noticed at, you know, when I was on site, which is not every single day as a consultant, obviously, I noticed just watching on my own, this player consistently shot very well in drills. And it became kind of not an obsession, but it definitely became something that I immediately was like trying to figure out. I just, I couldn't. And, you know, so the first three days I noticed it was like, well, that's weird. He was shooting the crap of the ball today. You know, the fifth time out of five I noticed it, it was like, okay, this is very strange. The seventh and eighth time in a row where he's just a machine gun in practice and he can't find the rim in games, I'm like, there's something going on here. This, this is officially now 
gone from highly implausible that this is just me showing up on hot days and that you know this is just a crazy run yeah and i started talking this one i had conversations before but we, we for the first time had a direct conversation about shooting and the sense that i got was that he thought he was a better shooter than he was in games but he just didn't feel comfortable taking the shot and i just i couldn't figure it out and so one of the one finally a day comes where I'm where I'm there and I'm, and then I, I start talking to this player I start I start telling the coach so I'm like this look at him like watch him watch him right now he's and he, he, true to form he's knocking him down and I was like what I'm gonna do is when we when we pull all the team together I am going to literally point this out in front of 30 people this player shot incredibly well we're just gonna see what happens so the, the we, we bring the team is brought in and I do it. I, 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 I call player up by name. I have him step forward out of the huddle. And I said, this guy, every time I have been at practice, been knocking him down. I know you're not, a, you know, I, I know your percentages are, we don't have to mention it here, but I would like to see you take more threes today. Just feel like you have a green light. The coach obviously signed off on it. It was fine. Um, the very first play of five on five after that meeting, this player is wide open in one of his favorite spots on the floor. His feet are set. He gets the ball kicked out to him. He shoots the ball more confident than I think I've ever seen this player shoot in his entire career. You know, I've watched – at this point, I've watched literally every single three-pointer he's ever taken in his college career. And he doesn't brick it, but he misses. It's not a bad miss. It's one that rattles around and, and goes out. And immediately, four assistant coaches – Forces and coaches slash managers slash GAs start laughing. And one of them loudly says, there's your guy, Joe. And this player, as he runs back on defense, looks over at me like, why would you do this to me? <laughs> and in that moment, it was like, oh, I think I get it. And so I literally go up to this player and keep in mind, I mean, this is my job. This is probably not smart, what I, what I did here. But I thought it was going to pay off, and it ended, up, it ended up paying off, so I did it. Um, I literally cornered this player leaving practice who probably doesn't want to talk to me today anymore. And I basically tell him, I'm like, dude, here's what I'm going to tell you, okay? You need to shoot more threes. And these are the spots that I've identified where you're good. Set feet, corner shots. Set feet, corner. You don't shoot any threes when you're curling around. You don't shoot any threes where you're off balance. You don't shoot any threes unless there's five or less seconds on the shot clock. Out, you know, outside of set feet in the corner. If you're set feet top of the key, there's five seconds, let it, let it fire. If there's seven, pass it. And he's like, no. I'm like, no, 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 dude, you have to. Because this team right now is a ceiling. We're the best – when we're in the tournament this year, and this team did go to the tournament, um, the best defenses are just – they're not going to guard you, man. Like, like, like this, this works against our competition right now. This is not going to fly in a single elimination game where all the stops are pulled out. And basically, we argue for the next 10 minutes. This person's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, no, you're going to do it. <laughs> I have a dick move on my part. I'm like, no, you should do this. Yeah. And eventually, I'm like, okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. All right? You get heat when you miss. All right? You go to like, – if, if you get heat, if you take four threes in the game and you miss all four and you get called into the office of the head coach and he asks, what the heck were you thinking? You say, Joseph Gill told me to do it. And I'm, I'm basically being like, dude, I, 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 I told him, like, no, throw me into the bus. Like, literally, literally tell them that I corned you after practice and that I'm like, you need to do this. You have to do this. And he's kind of like, what? And I'm like, no, dude, you are a good shooter. Like, in this specific role, you are good in this one thing, and you need to take threes for us to win games. And eventually this player very is, – is just like, whatever, fine. He comes out the next game. Second possession of the game, the exact situation that I that I that I, I'm calling for. I believe it was a right corner shot. Catches the ball with like 18 seconds on the shot clock. He takes it, and you can literally see he shoots it confidently. You can literally see one of the coaches on the bench go, you know, he's getting his hands up. <laughs> like this is what is going on here. Knocks it down. This player, on not a very strong, I mean, not not a very large sample, but on a sample of about 1.5 to two shots for the rest of the year. Ended up being, I think, about 15 to 20 shots. I think he shot 57% from three to finish the year. He went from being a guy who was shooting literally 22% on about 100 attempts for his career to shooting 57. And, yeah, that's a good run. The statistical significance of that, you know, if you are truly a 22% shooter, you know, making even, you know, five out of ten under those circumstances is, is astronomically unlikely. It happens some, some amount of the time. But, you know, and that, that becomes – even more astronomically unlikely if you go 10 for 14, you know, 10 for, for 14. Um, 
you know, I, and I, I think it speaks to one of those things where, like, it's not always a technical issue with players. Sometimes you have to be willing to, like, you know, bridge this gap that, like, what motivates a player, even some player like this player who was very team-oriented, incredibly intelligent, who, you know, was very, very about the team. Sometimes there, there are hidden incentives where a player just doesn't want to feel like, you know, that him shooting threes was a joke, yeah. you know? And, and I, don't, I don't know how often, like, the, 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 like, that smirking and that behavior was going on. But, like, you know, if you're a coach, I, th I think that some coaches lose track of the fact that, like, you know, when you're, sometimes something funny happens in a practice and everyone kind of chuckles. That can be a very traumatic experience for players, even college players. I mean, I wouldn't say – I mean, like, I don't want to be saying, like, even pros, but I'm assuming it does happen to pros too on some level. I mean, I've heard stories that did not happen with any of my clients, but I've heard stories of guys who were incredibly talented bombing out of the NBA because, like, their teammates were just – were crappy to them. You know, they are just very crappy to them. A lot of um, teammates probably. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I think it's one of those things where, like, you know, when, when, when you are – when something funny happens on the court, like a dude airballs a three who's not a shooter – you don't know what that person's been doing in, you know, in his driveway or, you know, in like, obviously if a dude isn't putting in the work and isn't getting better and there's no signal that he's getting better and he airballs a three, be like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, like, why'd you take that? Seriously, why'd you, and like, you know, you can tell me if you've been working on that and then we're going to ask how much have you been working on it? This is kind of the coach tower influence where it's just like, you know, brutal honesty is the best policy yeah. where it's like, Hey man, I think that's a bad shot. Why do you think that's a good shot? Cause every once in a while you're going to be told by a kid, like I've been working on that shot, you know, for the last month and a half for 30 minutes every single day at home. And it's like, fine, take some more. We'll see what happens. Because, like, you know, if you don't give a leash to a player to show you a skill set that they've never shown before, there's no way that player can improve except in the most gradually, you know, acceptable amounts that the coach is allowing them to improve by. And that's to be improving in practice before it goes into game, correct? Completely agree. But yeah. also, there, there's no way to prove it in practice if a, if a player isn't allowed to take any amount of a risk at any point in his practice career. And that, to me, you know, you have to find a balance. You can't – practice can't be just experiment time for every single player to go out and just be like, this is what I want to be. It's like, no, this is who you are. But also, you do need to allow some amount of leeway for a player to surprise you because, you know, it's, it kind of goes back to Steph Curry where, you know, one of my favorite graphs for, the long, for when Steph Curry was first going on this run, the 67-game season, was there was this graph that – proved in theory that Steph Curry was just on an incredible heater because no one had ever shot this effectively on off the dribble three pointers in NBA yeah. history. I mean, that, that graph was of course proven to be 100% wrong because Steph Curry found out a way to practice in a way no one else had practice in a way in the system unleashed in a way no one else had. And, you know, at a certain point you do have to accept that a sample size if it's large enough is beating a trend and Steph Curry has crushed a trend. And now all of a sudden he's, he's proven this is possible. You know, it's, and in theory, everything's impossible until it's done for the first time, right? Yep. Yep. Let's do some quick hitters. So, um, talk about an NBA player who's called over a play that isn't. Over. I mean, Ben Ben Simmons to me is just like, you know, the most underrated, underappreciated player in the NBA. And, uh, I, you know, I know you said this is a quick hitter, and I, I'm sure that, you know, that <laughs> this might turn to a long hitter. Um, but, I mean, what do you expect? He, he's a 6'10 athletic ball handler who runs an incredible pick and roll. He's playing with statistically one of the worst rollers in the NBA and Joel Embiid. And on top of that, Joel Embiid doesn't space the floor and demands a ton of post-up touches a game and is in terrible shape. I mean, like, what do you expect? <laughs> if, I, if I were to plop, you know, um, if I were to plop Glenn uh, Big Baby Davis, you know, in the middle of, of Giannis's bucks – how do you think that would affect Giannis's ability to score effectively over a 30%, you know, over a 30 minute sample size? They played it. it, it, it I mean, like, if, if Nikola Pekovic was on the Bucks, how would Giannis do? <laughs> I know there are a lot of people who are very angry at me right now hearing that this is my actual opinion. Yeah. But, like, there's one trend that you, that you should know in college basketball and professional basketball. This is coming from a former back to the basket guy. Like, I, I posted up a ton. Like I said, I would never recruit me because I didn't play defense and I clogged the lane all the time. Yeah. If I recruited me, it would be in a stretch, you know, like, like I would just take threes and make passes. I would not, and like, you know, any critical defensive possession, I would be glued to the bench, yeah. you know? But yeah, it's just, I, 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 he's so, I mean, yeah, it's like, I, I don't, I don't see any logical path to six. The fact that Ben Simmons is able to impact games the level that he does consistently. And he has a few stinkers occasionally, obviously, mm -hmm. but like, Every single time that Embiid doesn't play, and there's some modicum of shooting around 
Simmons. The team has performed much better than you'd expect from a team that is losing out on a max contract slot. There's another part of this variable. If you were to move and beat, and beat, all of a sudden you have like $45 million more every single year with the cap to play with, you know. So, yeah, Ben, ben Simmons. I, 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 you know, until, until Ben Simmons isn't an athletic freak, I'm going to be on this train. Numbers, numbers wise, you're one of the guys that buys these 10 second clips of him making four in a row that the, the 76ers release every time. I don't even buy that. I don't care. Like, I really don't. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Like, if, if he was able to make three pointers, he'd be better. Yeah. He's still, in my opinion, really probably very good even without making three pointers. Hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's like, in, I, I, would, I would love to hear an explanation. Um, of somebody who thinks that, that Simmons isn't being like isn't a Giannis style player, like like try to describe to me in the most precise terms you can what is the difference between those two guys? Like Giannis is a little bit longer. Dot dot dot. Like I, I literally I struggle like and you can say like, oh Simmons' handle is looser or like or like uh, what available more often. Yeah, I mean maybe Simmons isn't allowed to travel as much, and like I love Giannis, but Giannis does get away with a lot of travels. <laughs> no, I was saying is I was saying more. He just has had less injury issues, but but Simmons can't control that. But for yeah. me, it was it was just seeing the roster, you know, development around Simmons has you know changing issues, and they brought in Horford and they brought in Tobias, and I was like, I, you already have two seven footers that that you're you're struggling with the spacing. Right. I, I was, I, I was very out on Horford before this free agency even started. And then I saw like I signed with the 76ers and I was like, well, this is just never going to work. <laughs> like, no, I'm really out. It, it literally, it literally reminded me of that SpongeBob episode where SpongeBob's like, this bubble can't get any worse. And Patrick's like, what about two bubbles? <laughs> and he just, yeah, like it's literally. Bring it like, home with the SpongeBob. I love it. And people, people are like, Al Horford was brought in to facilitate Simmons. And like, what? No, like the explicit stated reason by team officials was that he was Embiid protection. They were doubling down on Embiid, you know? Yeah. He was to be the guy who was like, the gap when Embiid went off the floor, they could keep playing with Embiid light, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, of course it doesn't work. What, what, what did the Warriors teach us? Shooting's the most important thing on offense. There's no shooting on that team, you know? And I'm going to dump the guy who's a post-up guy versus the guy who's the athletic ball-handling freak, you know? Losing JJ was big. Talk about the NBA Twitter community and the relationships you've formed through that medium. Oh, I mean, I, I've, I've made some, you know, I, I, it's, it's that weird thing where, like, some of your online friends, when you think about it, are like, I like talking to that person. You know, like, oh, I've met them four times. You know, like, it's, it's very weird to talk about in the sense, but, like, I, dude, I, I talk daily, you know, for, for long periods of time with, with some of the people that I was talking about earlier were, like, they're basketball people who don't even really like analytics guys, but, like, we get along fantastic. So, like, you know, I think about, like, the friendships I've made with skills trainers and, like, the business relationships I've also then made with skills trainers. Mm. Friendships I made with the guys who were part of Elite. You know, like, Mgrads and I, like, you know, it's, it's him and I have been – like I've I I have been so happy that that I get to like just kick it with that dude in the internet space like you know once a week every single week for the past three or four years like you know he, he's a constant source of hilarity he's a constant source of like funniness he's also very what is his story you know I, I love you know I love his account I just don't know personally guys in basketball I mean honestly it's it, you know it, it makes me laugh when people are like he's xenophobic or like he's anti-analytics I'm like dude I've I've literally sat next to MGrads at Summer League and be like, hey, here's here's your buddy's synergy page. And he just was like, Yeah, I get it. Like he gets analytics, he just doesn't like your analytics. <laughs> like stop that's that's another like, trend of the people that I that I like that you know are like non-analytics people. It's like, no, they they like information that's gonna help them be better at their basketball opinions and their basketball careers, coaching. You know, like but like they just don't like, like they don't, you haven't won them over to your style of thinking. Like it's, yeah, it's, he's, he's a smart guy who's in the basketball space and like, he's, he's fun to hang out. He's funny and he's smart. So he's my type of guy. <laughs> what's a, what's an NBA take that you wish you could take back? I mean, like and it, it, right now, anybody who's, who's followed me, I mean, like, you know, if, if you follow me and you're, you're listening or watching this, you, I'm sure there's a take that just jumped immediately to mind. Like, dude, I've had some really bad whiffs. Like what really led me down this analytics train where like I realized my scouting wasn't as good as my analytics is that like Chris Daff's Porzingis I thought it was going to be a bust and that was very incorrect I'm sure there are people right now screaming Luca um I'm not I'm not backing up I'm not ready to back off that take yet I view Luca 
in the same way that I viewed Carmelo Anthony over the course of his entire career and that I have so far viewed Russell Westbrook over the course of their entire career. And that's going to piss some people off. But, like, oh. it's, it's, just, it's just a philosophical difference in, like, you know, how you judge how a player impacts winning a championship, you know? And so, like, right now, like, people always say that, like, the worst thing that a team can do is pay a guy, a faux superstar, a ton of money. Pay a guy who can't bring you a trophy a ton of money and invest in that guy for eight, nine, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And to me, that's Luka Doncic. And you might be listening to this five years from now and being like, well, he's won three less championships. You're kind of stupid, Joe. And, yeah, maybe I am. I mean, like, I've, I've never claimed that my predictions are 100% correct, and I know I'm going to be wrong at some of them. But, like, part of the reason why, like, I don't – even the Chris Stapp's take, I don't regret is because, like, you – if you want to succeed in this industry, you have to be the most self-critical. You Like, I, I'm very self-confident. I am also – incredibly self-critical we're like when i when i mess up i'm not gonna go out there and be like guys i'm gonna i'm gonna post this once a day for a year i was wrong i'm trying to acknowledge it very quietly and trying to move on with my life and damage control it but like i do learn from my mistakes like that's that is that is if you're not learning from your mistakes what are you learning from and so like that chris Epson, that's what got me into analytics where like i i assess like i blew this really badly and i need to be better at this and so like you know, that's – I don't regret anything that I that I was wrong on because, like, you know, it makes me better. I it's, believe – I think also, like, his, his archetype, you know, statistically is hasn't panned out well in the NBA. So I can kind of see where you're coming from there. Um, I mean, just – I mean, he's a unicorn, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> and a unicorn is exactly that. It's rare. Um, I mean, that being said, I blew it. Like, going, going into his analytical profile from – the deal i blew it yeah. like knowing, knowing what i know now i don't think i would have I, I don't think i would have whiffed that bad i probably would have whiffed to some degree but i wouldn't have i wouldn't have gone for the big air got you um 60 seconds real quick on on what makes coach tower successful as how how are you giving me the hardest to answer question and telling me i have to answer in 60 how does the psychology background uh, impact his coaching? I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to set up his background in 60 seconds. John Tower was a Division three player who then went on to graduate school in psychology at Wisconsin, got a PhD in psychology, came back to coach at his alma mater, started off as an assistant, was now been the head coach for the last seven years. Probably the biggest influence in my life as far as like how I view not only basketball but like business, life, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Coach Tower is a fascinating guy because he's, he's brilliant psych- psychologically, but, like, every single aptitude test he took as a kid came back that he should have gone into, like, um, oh, what's it called? It's, uh, it's that thing that, like, every single finance kid wants to be out of college. Um, actuarial. Every, every single, like, thing that – every single aptitude test he took said he should have gone to actuarial science. You can literally go up to this guy and you can say – I can't do this. You, you can go up and say it was 357 times – you know, 1,243. He thinks, and then it gives you the correct answer, and it's that fast. It literally, like, he is, he is better at numbers than I am. He just doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't use his time to search for analytics like I do. So, you know, that's why him and I work together. Um, I'm sorry, what was, now I've set the table, what was the question about? Why is he successful? I think um, just the psychology background is that, you know, how he communicates with players on the floor, how he understands what they're feeling without them saying, you know, what, what goes into that. And it's, it's interesting. It's like, I mean, every single player who plays for coach tower goes through two stages of him. When you come in, you're happy to be in such a winning program, St. Thomas. So he's a, he's a professor at St. Thomas. St. Thomas is, is made national news now because they got kicked out of their division three conference and they're going division one. They've won so much. Um, I think they've won like 12 of the last 14 championships. They won, they won national championships for D3. They're always in the tournament. Um, when you first come into St. Thomas, you're happy to be part of a winning program, and Coach Tower scares the crap out of you because <laughs> you're an insecure 19-year-old and 20-year-old, and you're afraid, you know, like, every, like you know, you've been able to skate by so, so far in life, you think I'm being slick, you know? And then the, your coach is now able to, in theory, read you perfectly and know what you're thinking. Mm. And to be honest with you, I don't know. I play poker with Coach Tower, and, like, he's very good at making reads. There's no way that he's not. But, like, you know, he's never – He's never told me exactly what two cards I have, you know. He's told yeah. me what, generally what he thinks I have. He's normally correct. Um, 
But, like, you know, as you get older, you realize that Coach Tower is successful with his psychological background because he's just very honest and indifferent. He just tells you the truth in very, like, not mean. Like, he can tell you something that, like, other coaches might say in a mean way. It's like, it's tough love. But Coach Tower just tells you it's just like, hey, like, we've got, like, for example, I came into St. Thomas. I played three games at a, a different school in the conference. I, I actually led my team in scoring as a freshman against St. Thomas when we played them. I came into St. Thomas. I had a torn meniscus in my knee uh, that I didn't even know about. And during tryouts, it was revealed that I had to tear my meniscus. Before we knew it was a meniscus tear, though, I got the news on how he thought my tryout was. And he's like, dude, to be honest with you, if we didn't know you and we, you know, and we, didn't, we, we didn't have this relationship, you would have you been cut. You were garbage. He didn't say garbage. That was, that was how I – like, that's kind of how it works. Like, he tells him, it's like, you didn't play well. And you think I was garbage. Like, it's just it's, – but, like, you know – you, you realize that, like, he didn't tell you that because he's trying to be a jerk. He's saying that because he wants you to realize that, like, this is where you stand. And so, like, being able – like, I think another thing that makes him so successful with the PSU background is that he's very precise in his language, it feels like. That's one of the things that I believe that I've learned from him is that, like, he always takes that extra half a second when he has a thought to think about the recipient of the thought, to try to think about how am I going to frame this the best way so that, like, it might be something that this person would otherwise be – opposed to or would reject in some way but if I figure out the best way to communicate it maybe this person might be able to accept it on a level he hasn't previously I'm not win him over in this moment but I might start this like personal you know thinking journey for this person that like leads us to the result we wanted to be led to so I mean and now said he's just he's a brilliant guy who's radically indifferent to other strategies like you watch his offense his offense is constantly in the top you know five percentile in synergy for college offenses and it's simple it's simple because it works and you know, he's not one of those guys like coach Roy Williams who like has to have a Rude Goldberg machine to get a layup. If you can run the same pick and roll action and you get a 1.1 points per possession read out of it every single time. Well, thank you. We'll take the 1.1 possessions on every single possession, 1.1 points on every single possession, you know, in the game. Yeah. So, I mean that, that to me, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, that other people say other things like that to me, like the high intelligence, you know, the, 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 the radical indifference where it's just all about the results and, and then also the honesty. I mean, those three things really add up to a great coach, I think. Offensively speaking, you, you know, you just kind of touched on that. Is is his basically just pick and roll layups and then, you know, corner threes. <laughs> Statistic guys, not, you know, <laughs> favorite. That, uh, I, I'm not, I, I, can't take, I can't take credit for almost anything, but, like, I, I like to think that I had something to do with the corner threes because uh, – <laughs> That, that has been one of my big talking points with, with Coach Tower over the last two to three. And, you know, and at first when he was like, hey, what about this relationship of us working together? I mean, it's, it's also very interesting to break down our relationship. And it kind of speaks to, like, how he's able to get through to people. I mean, you know, how many players do you hear about who transfer in late to a college, don't play in a game for that team, leave the program, transfer to another school to finish up, and then still maintain a positive relationship with the head coach? Never mind a working relationship, just like a friend relationship. So, I mean, like – you know, that to me, like, that is, in a mic, like, you know, my involvement with the program, to me, is kind of indicative of, like, how he operates. He just, he, he finds edges, and, he, and he's able to get things out of people that other coaches wouldn't, you know? He, he's able to, to identify value in ways that, like, you know, the, the idea that any other college coach would go to a former player who's 23, 24 years old and be like, I think you can help us, when he wasn't even able to help the team on the floor, that's a pretty wild thing premise and it's worked out but like it was worked out because he's indifferent he yeah. saw someone who added value to him the fact that I bombed out of the program and that I you know I couldn't defend anyone to save my life in college it didn't mean anything you know it was just like do you add value I, th- I think something that I see about coaches too you know sometimes we sort people in you know we, we see Joseph Gill comes in an open gym and he misses five backdoor layups and then I immediately think he's trash you know, I don't look at the fact that, oh, you know, he missed those layups because of a great defender, and then he – he freeze. You know, funny, you, you were actually explaining what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went from a guy who was, like, very confident in his basketball abilities. I mean, the, the year the year that I was in the program and the, the year that I, I – before I ripped my knee for the last time in fall workouts, I literally did not know where the ball was going when I shot it sometimes. Like, my knee was just in such bad shape that like I would just miss layups and like it wouldn't even be because of defense I just like I couldn't jump 
So. I still think it's hilarious. I mean, it's not hilarious because you messed up your knee, but it is funny. It's kind of funny. You know, we, 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 can, we can acknowledge it's kind of funny. Yeah, it's fine. Th- things are, are going okay. Like, I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to hold the torch for my D3 career anymore. My, my favorite part of it is that you're an offensive player that injured your knee on that defensive play. <laughs> that's why they get – thank you. I mean, like, that's, that's part – honestly, dude, and this is – and this, if it wasn't Tyus Jones who threw that pass, I would have never jumped for it. I want to a Tyus pass, man. Like, if that was – if that, that could have been the state finals, and if it was Billy from Armstrong, I don't care. I'll, I'll wall up when the ball's on the – you know, when the guy catches the ball. I don't care about swatting it. I mean, you can tell your grandkids that, that, that you swatted that pass out, not, not on your watch. Um, let's – two last questions. Um, what is Minneapolis like right now? I mean, I was talking about what it was like at the beginning, you know, when, when George Floyd first, you know, passed away and was killed, you know, what has it been like? It's strange. It's, it's very, it just, it it feels, it feels like a population of people who are, first of all, being oppressed. I'm not part of that population. I'm talking about minorities, obviously. Um, there's, and it's very clear that, you know, the amount of faith that people who look like me from the suburbs extended to the to the pds of, of the twin cities was probably mi- misguided and you know i in particular am very upset because i think about philando castile who was a black man who was killed by police in st paul i believe in 2015 or 16 and there were a lot of promises made at that time and that officer was acquitted um and knowing what we know now about the circumstances of george floyd's death and and the way that the only reason this came to light and the truth came to light of how this happened is because a woman in the scene took the video of it, the nine minute strangulation um, of George Floyd. Um, it calls into question literally every, every action, every single person killed by this PD in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. It, it, it calls into question everything we were told about Philando Castile. It calls into question all the promises that were made about these PDs being, um, you know, being reformed in the wake of Philando Castile. And then and now, um, you know, we're starting to call into question, you know, exactly how many people uh, actually meant what they said about, you know, the city council with Mayor Fry. Did you actually mean what you said when we were, you know, out there in the streets and, and really making life not fun for people? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe not fun. That, that's, that's the wrong language. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, like, I, I can't explain to people how much support there was for the cause in Minneapolis. Um, I believe, I, I think I saw a poll after the precinct was burnt, that like 62% of residents of Minneapolis and I was one of them, um, could find no fault of the people who burnt that precinct because that precinct in particular was a precinct that, first of all, killed George Floyd, and second of all, was a precinct that all the cops who didn't play by the rules and didn't follow regulations that other precincts were sent to, the cowboy cops, if you will. You know, the cops got results who didn't play by the rules were sent to that precinct, and it really calls into question exactly how this PD was policing North Minneapolis, South Minneapolis, and minority populations. And, um, you know, it's... It's, it's that thing where, you know, like, and I, I can't help, and I, I, I marched, and I, I went to the protests, and I, I went to Cup Foods where George Floyd was killed, and, um, you know, this, this isn't about me, obviously. It, it could not be less about me, but standing at that spot, you, you cannot help but question everything that you did your entire life, especially considering that Philando Castillo was killed, and I did nothing. I truly didn't. I did not do anything. I did not speak out. I, I, I put my faith in, in the system. Of, I, put, I put my faith in the process, which is what you're supposed, which is what you're told as a white person you're supposed to do. And I feel I just, I was overcome with a sense of guilt, of sadness, of complacency. Um, and that's, and you know, and I don't, I, I definitely do not shy away from trying to use my platform. The way that I view it is that, you know, if, if, if I'm giving up free analytics game, you get to, you you get to figure you get to hear what I think about the world because this information is worth something. If you don't, you can unfollow. It's fine. Yeah. Um, this information is worth some small amount. I'm not selling it, so it's not worth a lot. But it's worth something, and you know, I I definitely would feel like um, that if I wasn't using my small platform at this time to try to help the people in the basketball space who are part of these communities, these marginalized people, that uh, I wouldn't be able to look them in the eye um, next time I saw them because these people have been telling us our entire lives that they are suffering and that they are marginalized and they are oppressed. And uh, we, 
especially in this city of Minneapolis, it feels like a lot of people have been taking the convenient route. We just didn't believe them. And uh, George Floyd and countless other people are dead because of it. And, um, you know, the, the mood in the city is, is it, it still hangs over. And um, I'm not sure, you know, I, 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 it, would, it would take some actual, and like, you know, the, the way that the Minneapolis PD handled the wake of the killing is disgusting. Bob Kroll, who is a name that I don't think people even know outside of the Twin Cities, is a disgusting human being. Um, he's he's the, the union chief of the PD. He, he was trying to reinstate the officers to the force while they were awaiting criminal charges. And it just, it seems like that this PD, especially the one in Minneapolis, and I've had nothing but bad experiences with the Minneapolis Police Department. I've had literally nothing but good experiences with the police department in the town I grew up in. Maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe it's not that I, that I, I get treated differently, potentially, where I grew up. But um, this PD just needs to be abolished. It, it, this, this PD has been trying to be reformed. They've been trying to reform this, this police department for decades and nothing changes and people are just sick of it. It's time for action. Yeah. I feel like there's a, there's a big difference between, you know, su- supporting, you know, the people that are supposed to serve and protect, you know, that's, that's something you can do, but you also have to, you know, hold accountable to the bad eggs that, that exist. And I mean, it kind of sounds like Minneapolis PD was the last chance you for, for some of those cops. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I won't say, and like, you know, this is where I kind of, I, I, I differentiate a little bit from people of like-minded political philosophy. But like, I don't believe that inherently every single police officer is a bad person. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, if you have a thousand officers in a police department and 40 of them are bad eggs and 960 of them are good eggs, but the 960 allow the 40 to act with impunity, mm-hmm. you've got a thousand practically speaking bad eggs and they're controlled by the 40 bad eggs. And I mean, like, it was also particularly disgusting to me that part of, because Derek Chauvin kills George Floyd over nine minutes as George Floyd begs for his life, tells him he can't breathe, as passerbyers tell him that he's killing him. Derek Chauvin performs a continuous nine-minute act of killing. And one of the three officers who stood by and did nothing was on his fourth day. And his legal representation tried to use that to say that he was less blameless. He, he was more blameless in, in the killing because it was his fourth day. And to me, that just says that there is a culture of fear and intimidation with a thin blue line in this police department, where even when the ethics training is fresh in your head, whatever that might entail in the academy, that that person didn't feel like he had the power to step in. What is the point of this police department? Because it, it is basically implying that this is an unreformable system where, where it, you know, where young cops come in, they, they are bossed around by the bad eggs of Derek Chauvin's people out here killing the George Floyds and they feel they're either complicit or they feel powerless. And, you know, if these good cops in whatever number they, they are want to feel empowered, it's time to start breaking the thin blue line because you look at the hundreds of videos of police brutality across this country in the wake of the George Floyd incident and, there is, you know, there are, very, there are precious few cops who are actually trying to reel in the ones who are assaulting protesters, who are just beating the crap out of kids. Are you a, are, are you a good cop if you allow that to happen? Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. Appreciate those words. Um, well, we'll I appreciate do. you asking. I, I truly do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something that's important to talk about. You know, it's, it's important to use, you know, the privilege that we do have. Um, let's talk about towing the line between being, you know, blunt honesty on Twitter and not sabotaging potential future customers. I mean, I think it's a tightrope, uh, tightrope walk and I am effectively scooting on the tightrope, uh, on my groin because I don't do a good job at doing either as well as I could, I feel like, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, and it's, 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 you know, and we could talk about this for a while and this is a long podcast, so I won't because you've got stuff to do and I've got stuff to do, but <laughs> I, I definitely, I, I don't ever tweet anything I don't believe. I always tweet what I believe. And I also understand that sometimes I get asked to tweet things out that I won't tweet out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just like I, my, my, my voice is only my voice. And that also, you know, so that kind of extends like when I'm right, I to own it. When I'm wrong, I have to own it and I improve from it. Um, I don't want my, my path in this industry to be dictated by, you know, the pressures of other people who may not even be real pressures or real players. Because there's a lot of people who pretend like that they – you know, they're able to, you know, inflict all this pressure on the arc of your career. And let me tell you, I've upset a lot of those people. And 
I have not felt a lot of repercussions yet. So maybe it's I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm just you know pop my head up and maybe a wax. Who knows? But um, but yeah, I it's I I, it, I generally you know I. I I've worked for agencies and I've criticized their players after I've worked for them. And I don't, I don't do it because I'm mean. I don't do it because I'm a jerk. I don't, I, I do it because I think that it's important that you can play, you can be mindful of your closest relationships, but just because an agency's paid me, you know, for, you know, two, three packets of work over a two month period, is that paying my rent? Well, if it isn't, you know, it does to some degree, but if it isn't, um, I got to start looking for my next rent check, you know, like, and it's, I got to start, I got to start looking for my next day trading disaster. Um, I, uh, and so, you know, it's, yeah, I, I try to toe the line and don't get me wrong. Like I, you know, w w the only time I ever really delete tweets are in a situation where either I use language that I, that I'm ashamed of and I, and I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to grow as a person. And, you know, part of that I think is, is acknowledging that you screwed up. But part of that is also trying to, you know, remove remove the sense of, of um, the sense of, of comfort for the people who still want to use that language. So I think, I think yeah. when, you know, like when you're really looking at, you know, like using ableist language or using stuff that can be, you know, like construed as dog whistle racism, deleting it is, is the best call. It doesn't matter how young you were, how long ago it was. I try to delete as many idiotic remnants of the stupid person I was. Um, but, uh, I, I, I delete tweets that I, that I, that I, I, try, that I don't think are indicative of who I am anymore or, I, or who I strive to be, but I also delete tweets that are um, negative um, before I meet with the player. And that to me is just kind of common courtesy because I also understand like a lot of these guys do read every single thing that is said about them. And that's fine. Yeah. Like I played, I played three games of division three basketball. I Googled my name after every single one. Like, <laughs> I mean, like you're just you're, like, you're telling me that not that we have the most crazy information super high in the history of mankind, and we're not using it to try to figure out how people feel about us. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, players are no, they're, they're people, man. But you know, so in in every once in a while, like even after I do that, like you know, that it's it's not. I've never had somebody explicitly say you said this, but it's been you know acknowledged that I have been less than uh than than positive at times with the person I'm currently now trying to. To woo as a client and frankly um it's always good because i find out in that moment if we're gonna have a relationship or not because if you can't handle credit like I, I i tell people this all the time i have literally verbatim said to players stuff i've tweeted about them like and you know and i don't i don't do it you know like if i'm working on a project i'm not going out and i'm not spilling the beans on twitter but you know i i have i have ripped verbatim something that i said about players six months ago when their agent hires me to help them out with their game yeah. um, there, there's not a single tweet that even for someone like that crush like rj barrett if rj barrett pulled up my tweets about him and really wanted to try to make me uncomfortable i would just be like dude i i i'd still believe that and i i maybe i've tweaked my opinion since but i don't think i was wrong at the time and frankly you know yeah like how you feel about it because i this is my analysis you know yeah so it's yeah it's i mean don't get me wrong I'm, I'm sure i've lost out on potential clients i i've also I have heard that, that I have a certain person who um, is, is a high-profile player who, who's a fan. I've been a little bit more, you know, steering away from criticizing them and their friends since I figured that out. But for the most part, you gotta, you got to be really a big-time player for me to, like, give you a, a leeway, I feel like. I mean, like, it's just – what am I if not honest? That's not saying that I have a whole bunch of big-time players that constantly, like, look at my Twitter. It's just – who am I if not honest? You know, is, is this yeah. my analysis or is this the, the market's analysis? Got you. Got you. Question. What's, what's next for Merck analytic? I mean, I, I heard you were putting a speaker set together, you know, where do you want the company to go? Um, so, I mean, Merck, frankly, I mean, I, I, I love where Merck is at because like Merck is, is what I love doing. And so like, you know, it's, it's that thing like I'm a, I'm a one man operation. I like it that way. I, I feel like I've got full creative control. I've got full, um, quality control, which is very important to me. Um, but, you know, as far as where Merck goes, I mean, like, just expanding, you know, more clients every single month, hopefully, and then eventually I make enough money where I buy a house in Montana and I delete my Twitter. Like, that's... <laughs> I mean, like, Phil Jackson dream. <laughs> like that, I, I, I was literally, I'm looking at my Phil Jackson book right now, 
And I, I looked, and, and he was, like, talking about, like, building a, a house on Flathead Lake. And I was like, what? Like, that's where I want to live. Like, what? Wait, wait, it's, yeah, and it's very, anyway, but, you know, it's, it's weird. But, like, it's honestly the truth. We're like, at a certain point, I mean, like, I, I like the space I'm in. I love what I do. I, I, I want to grow. But, like, this isn't the ends. This is a mean to an ends for me. Um, but, you know, as far as other stuff on the horizon, I'm, I'm working with a startup down in Texas called ePlay. Um, I'm developing lecture series for them. I'm doing a little bit of work for them for some agency work, a little bit of work for some boutique pro players that have, uh, you know, uh, I'm doing a little bit of college work. Um, there actually might be an opportunity for college coaches to hop on and be involved at, uh, at no risk to them um, for the 2020-2021 season. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's that thing where, like, it's, it's nice to be in the space because, like, you know, I can't tell you how many times someone's coming to me with an idea where it's like, what if I hired you for this? And I'm like, why aren't I doing that? <laughs> you, know? So, you know, as far as, as far as what's next, I truly won't know until someone pitches me in a good idea. And, you know, the nice thing about analytics and the nice thing about like, you know, trying to be someone in the space that like, uh, you know, you, you have full leeway to be creative and like, you know, so, um, you know, if somebody, if somebody comes to me with a good idea and it makes sense, I'm all for it. You know, it might not be an idea that's, that's, that, you know, is, is within the you know the, the hourly price range that I'm currently working at, so I might pass on it while still supporting the idea and wishing it well. But yeah, um, yeah. Is I there mean, is there a niche that that you've dabbled in recently that that you could see yourself doing more? Of? I mean, you know, in theory, like I literally everything I do is kind of a niche in this independent marketplace. <laughs> like yeah, all of it. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 that thing where like I, I i've never i mean there have been a few aspects of projects that were made to specification that was kind of like eh, i i if this leaks i hope i'm not judged by this as a quality of my overall indicative level of work but like um you know i, I generally i generally feel like I, I hit a nice sweet spot of being like very analytically like actionable practical and like you know uh clean if you will like no, i don't use the noisiest numbers in the world also still getting important points across because like you know, if you think about where I make my edge, it's, it's from making a player from a guy who scores nine points every 10 possessions to 10 points every 10 possessions. You know, if, and, you know, if that takes two years and I'm a guy who uh, raises a PVP by 0 0.05, one point for every single 20 possessions over, you know, one year sample size for two years, over one year length of time for two years. So, like, um, you know, it's, it's all about grinding out the small edges and, like, really communicating it effectively. And, you know, there, there's a lot of nice niches where that's available. And, like, honestly, I'm, I'm – very upset about how Corona is being handled in this country, but personally, Corona has been, um, it's, it's been, uh, it's brought new people into the fold that otherwise I don't think would have taken longer to be brought into the fold because a lot of people are taking the time to assess, you know, their process in this space, be it skill trainer, team, college team, professional team, um, even a lead, um, an agency, a money man, um, you know, uh, a handler, if you will. I mean, you know, whatever, whatever term you want to use for those people. Yeah. They're, they're assessing the, their process right now. They're trying to fill in the blanks that they're not strong at. And, you know, the nice thing with analytics is that, like, you know, there's a lot of adaptability in that. So, you know, what, whatever the project comes, it comes. And I, I accept the challenge. I love work. And I, mean, I was up till 5 a.m. last night on a 12-hour day. I loved it. So, you know, I, I like all my niches. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. Sorry. I just thought of another one. What's the, what's the turnaround for, you know, if I want to hire you to, you know, I'm an NBA player that's in the bubble now. Okay. So I, I think, cause we had a conversation about a client I just delivered some work for before. And I think you're getting at that, right? No. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Okay. So I thought, yeah, yeah. so I, a turn, it depends on what you're asking. I mean, I, I've worked on literally, five-hour turnarounds before for some smaller stuff and that was more of a niche skill set thing um that was the player's own idea he went to his trainer and his agent was like i want to work on this and they reached out to me um uh, as far as my my turnarounds I, I delivered a report on an entire this is for a WNBA player um so i delivered a report for an ent her entire new batch of teammates um it was a 40-page report and that was a five-day turnaround and i yeah i mean like you know it's funny five days seems like a long time when you're assessing you know, it was, it was literally 40 pages. Like it was Is that mainly film work or that was mainly statistical work that you saw on her teammates. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's gotta be actionable. It's gotta be practical. So, I mean, it's, it's all statistically based, but at the same time, I mean, like, you know, telling, telling this player, you know, like this player on your team that you're coming into, you know, she is a great on ball pick and roll player. You know, this is a number for PPP. That's, that's a nice like grounding anchoring topic. Yeah. But, like, it's not actionable. You know, like, like what, what, where does that player mix in? You know, so, like, if I say, like, this player, 
is, and this is just like, you know, off, off the dome, like a very small thing that you could potentially point out to players. is like this player over the course of her entire WNBA career has always rated in the top one third of the percentage of her passes out of pick and roll that go to spot up players. And so when this player is in pick and roll and you see a potentially, you know, like 50-50 opportunity to relocate into the corner, you should probably do it more often than not, or more often than you otherwise would be because this player is more likely to hit you. So, you know, that, that right there is a small nugget. And, you know, basically 40 pages of small nuggets add up into a lot of time. <laughs> and you know, I, was, I was putting in, like, uh, I think, like, 16-hour days to turn that around in five hours. So, you know, there's, you got to watch a lot of film to do this well, I think. So, you know, I, I watched literally – every single possession of all of our new teammates over the course of their most recent season. So, you know, that, that right there is a big chunk of it. And then you have to write the 40 pages. So, yeah. you know, for an average player, I, I normally, I can get about a 24 to 36 hour turnaround for a one-off a player, you know, as far as like, this is what I see, this is where I can, I can add. And the best part about my work is that like, you know, for if you're a player who's a serious professional candidate or already a pro, the first sample is always free. Okay. Gotcha. All right, man. We uh, tell them your Twitter handle. You know, if you have a hot NBA bubble take. Uh, oh, I mean, if I don't, if I don't, you know, right now I will in an hour. Um, it's Joseph Gill M A. Say again. Uh, Joseph Gill M A. Gotcha. Gotcha. Appreciate you coming on, man. Have a great yeah. day. I mean, hopefully, hopefully this will be two parts. This was, as always, a long podcast. I can't <laughs> talk short. I just can't. So thank you, man. Good seeing you, buddy. Appreciate you, man.